for organ donation, again, heart, liver, kidneys, lungs, um, that sort of thing, only 1% of the population dies in such a way that makes them eligible for organ donation. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? My name is Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. In today's episode, I speak with Miles Kiefner, who works for the nonprofit that coordinates the uh, donation of organs in the state of Nevada. So in the United States, one of the things that we will learn about in this episode is that the government, uh, while they obviously regulate, like very heavily regulate organ donation, they do not uh, coordinate and handle the organ donation themselves. They leave that up to private enterprise, which is typically going to be nonprofits uh, for individual states in the United States that will handle organ donation. So Miles will talk about that for the state of Nevada and, and kind of the United States at large, how organ donation works. So we'll learn about what organs and tissues are accepted for donation, how they get the organs, uh, like what people and uh cadavers, bodies, things like that, uh, organs are taken from. And then on the recipient end, how you get the organs. And we'll learn all kinds of other stuff about organ donation. And at the end of this episode, Miles will give us advice for how we can get on the list to become organ donors ourselves, because obviously that's a beautiful, wonderful gift um, that you could give someone if ever you had an organ to give. Uh, it is it, You could literally be saving someone's life, so it's just really, really awesome. So without further ado, here is organ donation. Miles, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we start out with what are the different types of organs and tissues and things like that that are accepted in the United States for donation? Great question. Um, so I'll start by clarifying that there are two types of donation um, or two classifications, really. So what we say is there's life-saving donation and then there's life-enhancing donation. And the rules and regulations for each are different. Um, but mm, I think it's important sense. for the general population to understand that. Um, the first thing is, so for life-saving organs, that's kidneys, um, liver, your pancreas, your intestines, heart, and lungs. Um, and so an organ donor with life-saving organs could help upwards of eight people. Um, for life-enhancing donation, that's considered tissue and cornea donation. And there's lots of different types that can be donated. Um, there's bone, skin, and heart valves. There's also corneas. And so corneas go to help two people to be able to see again. Um, bone can help people who are in traumatic accidents to be able to walk again. Um, it also helps with spinal fusion surgeries. There's heart valves that go to help people with congenital heart defects, babies born with congenital heart defects, mm. as well as um, other aortic valve replacements and those sorts of things. And then skin donation can help people who are burn victims or women after uh, reconstructive surgeries for their mastectomies. Um, and there's actually nerve donation although my organization doesn't currently recover nerves, but nerve uh, donation can go for people who have been in traumatic accidents that maybe like lose part of their finger. Um, they can actually implant donor nerve, like the matrix of a nerve, and your nerves learn to connect to each other again so you can regain feeling. Interesting. Now, 
really quickly, you mentioned that the life saving donations, uh, you can help up to eight people. Is that, do you mean with different organs or like one organ gets dissected up to help eight people? And, and why, why is eight a cap? So, well, you only have two kidneys. <laughs> so those would go into two separate people. Um, your liver, your lungs could either go both lungs into one person or one lung into a person. Um, and then your heart would only go to one other person. Okay, so this so, is only for a somebody who is dis, is deceased. Like a, a a person cannot donate eight organs. It's like a body can donate eight organs. Sure. Yeah. So there's two types of organ donation. There's brain death donation, meaning your brain is is dead, um, but your heart you're being basically kept alive or kept your organs are perfusing um, because you're on a ventilator. Um, which is keeping your heart and it keeps your heart pumping, mm-hmm. uh, and your lungs breathing. So that's what brain death is. And those, so once brain death happens and you've been declared brain dead by a neurosurgeon, that's when, uh, we would talk with the, the patient's family and state either they were registered and this was their wish to help others or, um, would they didn't say either way, whether or not they wanted to do organ donation. Do you, are you guys comfortable with this on their behalf? Um, and at that point we take over management of the patient's care and then they would go to the operating room. Correct. Okay. But that's how that works. And are there other ways as well? Like I, I think at the start of that, you were saying there's one of two ways, right? Like that was one way and then there's another way. Right. So tissue and cornea donation, the, so the life enhancing donations that you can do that happens after cardiac death. So, um, a hospital will call us after a patient has been pronounced with their pronouncement time within an hour of the patient being pronounced. And at that point we screen their medical history to make sure that they wouldn't present any possible risks to a recipient. And then we reach out to their family. Okay. Um, quick question. Are you guys, or are there any throughout the United States that are um, affiliated with the government in any way, or is it just a industry that is regulated by the government, but not affiliated? Correct. That's exactly right. So we are a non-for-profit organization. Um, the line, so organ procurement organizations, there are, I don't know the exact number of how many there are, but the government decided where their recovery areas were. So for the Nevada Donor Network, we have a relatively small population. We call it donor service area. We have 2.2 million people in our DSA, our donor service area. But previously I worked in Seattle where it was all of Alaska, all of Washington, all of Montana was in our donor service area. So it was a lot larger geographically regioned space for us to, to serve population for organ donation. Okay. Um, question about Organ donation. Uh, is it only uh, people who are recently deceased, or are there also donations from living pe- like from living people? And can you even get on a list like that, or is that if you're a living person and let's say you want to donate a kidney, is that you're only going to donate a kidney to your own family member, and like the doctor is going to ask you about that? It's not like you're on a list of like, hey, I want to donate a kidney to a stranger. You could definitely donate your kidney to a stranger. (laughs) Um, There are actually around 40, there's been around 4,400 living donor transplants in 2017, um, year to date, as of September. Um, 
there have been 23 to 25,000 deceased donor donations. So there are fewer living donors, um, but they are still impactful. And yes, it often happens because, you know, my loved one is, is on the list and I want to see if I'm a match for them. And while we're at it, just put me on the list to be a donor, a living donor. Um, but it generally happens because someone, you know, needs one. Um, and so it, but there are just great Samaritans in the world who are like, I don't, I don't need, I don't know anybody who needs one, but I have a guinea to give if anybody wants it. Yeah. That's incredible. If you go down to only having one kidney, one lung, any of these things, I have to imagine that impacts your quality of life, right? You know, I, I don't, I'm not as familiar with that, with the living donor side of things, because that is done. Our organization focuses prime only on um, deceased donors. However, um, I, I have a friend who actually donated a kidney and he lives a normal life. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I mean, there's gotta be some, you know, awareness about it, but I don't, he doesn't seem any impact at all. Yeah. Um, and really quickly before we move forward, is it legal to get paid for your organs? I would have to imagine that would not be something that the government would want happening. Cause that would create Absolutely a lot not. of issues with the lower class of like, well, I better sell one of my kidneys right now because I gotta pay the rent this month. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. It's absolutely illegal to buy or sell organs. Okay, so you have yeah. to donate. That's it. Correct. Yep. And we, when we talk with families, we make that you know because families there are some whole body donation programs for research where because of the research that is done, they're not able. Uh, they have to cremate the body afterwards, and so those agencies offer free cremation to families in exchange for whole body donation. Gotcha. We are not at all affiliated with that. Uh, we can't offer any compensation or valuable consideration for the gift that a loved one makes um, or that a person makes if they register themselves. Okay. Um, all right. Let's talk. A, we call a, it a gift. Right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the logistics of all of this. So uh, once a, so let's do the, the cardiac side of things, how you said you have like one to two hours or whatever it is to get, uh, either cornea skin, stuff like that. How is this all coordinated? Like, do they call you? Does the hospital just do it? And then they let you know, like, what, how does it work? Sure. Okay. So maybe I misspoke or there was a misunderstanding. The hospital any hospital that receives Medicare or Medicaid funding, any any government funding, is required to call any cardiac time of death or any pronouncement time within an hour of the pronouncement time. So a patient passes away in a hospital, the nurse typically is the one who will call in and say, hey, we've had a patient pass away. I'd like to give you that information. And so we'll take that information. We technically have up to 24 hours from the time that a patient passes away to complete the recovery process oh, when, so when you said call the time you meant at, like physically call like call you yeah. i thought you meant call the time as in like uh i'm calling it this person is deceased yeah. like yeah. uh so they, <laughs> it's not just pronouncing it like they actually have to call you correct yep yep wow so yeah yep. and it's and it's <laughs> you so they so each hospital knows sort of whose jurisdiction they're within more or less exactly oh yeah we have an entire hospital services department, um, a team of people who do new nurse education, who collaborate with the hospitals to make sure that their referral rates are timely. So meaning if they're calling us three hours after the patient has been pronounced, that's not considered timely information um, because the clock is ticking. Obviously, we only have 24 hours. Right. So 
we follow up with nurses to make sure that the process is as easy as possible for them. Um, we even have access to medical records. So they call, they give us the patient's name, date of birth, medical record number, and we're able to look up information about that patient to get that nurse off the phone. But yeah, they definitely have to notify us. And that's at this point with a phone call. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and, uh, then once you receive that phone call, uh, what, what happens next? Like, how do you actually receive the stuff? Great question. So they give us the, the patient's name, like I said, medical record number. Um, we'll ask things like, what has their medical history been? How has this hospital admission gone? Um, has their next of kin been notified? How are they doing? Um, and then we will check the registry. We have access to the Nevada DMV right registry. So when you go to get your license, you put it on your license. We have access to that list. And then we have access to a national list because increasingly, and I bet we'll get to this later, um, we're seeing people register with national registries. Or if you have an iPhone, you can go to your health app and register through your phone. Hmm. Um, so we access that. And then within, it depends, every case is different, right? If a family, if it's an unexpected death or um, a traumatic death, and obviously the family is going to need some time to, to notify their family and to help them out um, and to, to kind of take in everything that's happened. So we try to reach out to families within three to four hours from the time that their loved one passed away. Um, but sometimes, you know, that can be harder. It can be hard to reach a family. So we'll try different ways to reach them at that point. What uh, talk to me a little bit about that process of talking to the family? I could only imagine how difficult that is to try to speak to people who have just lost a loved one. You know, it's an interesting thing because it can be a little bit hard, but it's amazing the number of families who are like, oh, they definitely wanted to help. Like they were a helpful person in their life. They're totally, they would be down for this. Or the families that receive comfort in knowing that their loved one's going to live on, I think that provides families with some comfort. Mm, yeah. Um, However, yeah, I mean, there are families who say, yeah, we talked about this. It just wasn't in line with their wishes. Um, there are some people, and we obviously want to respect that. I firmly believe it's your body, it's your choice. And and my main focus in my job is I want people to talk about it. I just, it's the worst feeling when families are like, I don't know. We never talked about it. Yeah. Um, and I now I'm faced with making this decision on their behalf, and I I hope I make the right decision, you know? Um, and we've, what we found through some research nationally is that there are more families who regret not donating later, like after the trauma has passed in the, in the weeks later, they asked families, you know, you made the decision not to donate. Is that still something that's okay? Um, and families will say, actually, we wish we had, um, you know, so that's an, that's an interesting part, but, um, for the most part, families are very gracious. Um, what percentage of people would you say say no, like like they are not okay with it? Good question. So Nevada is, uh, and we're working on this, but Nevada is um, historically low in registered donors. About 45% of our population that is above 18 is a registered donor. Um, so, for example, in, in Washington State, where I've also worked, 80% of the population is registered. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Alaska? very giving, um, which is also fantastic. That's great. So we're working on education in, in the DMV and, and all sorts of different venues as an organization um, to sort of deal with and talk about those common misconceptions that 
are out there about donation. So if um, the and, person was a registered donor, in that case, do you not even really need to talk to the family? You just get it and that's that. The interesting question. So by law, we have the right to go out and recover or we have the right. By law, no one is able to impede a donor's decision. If you register to be a donor, we want to move forward and honor your wishes. However, we definitely want the family to be aware and to be on board and to um, understand what's going on and what that decision means. And also, there's a medical and social questionnaire. I don't know if you've ever donated blood, but it's very similar to that, um, that we need to go through with the family. And so we'll reach out to the family, um, ask them, you know, inform them that their loved one registered, and then complete the paperwork with them at that time. Okay. And so I would imagine then in a state like uh, Nevada, where not a lot of people have, where there's many more people that aren't registered, um, it's just a much more difficult thing to get the families to say yes, because they don't really know what their loved one wanted. That's kind of funny, actually, of non-registered patients, we find um, about 45% of those families say yes on average. Oh, wow. Cool. So you yeah. end up with a similar rate anyways to other states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's always interesting to me because there are countries in the world where you are, it's assumed that you're registered to be a donor. I mean, it's, that's a given. Everyone is a donor unless you state that you're not. <laughs> um, here, you either say nothing or you're affirmative that you are on the registry. Um, so that's a little bit of a different scenario. So what we find is a lot of families say, oh, he wanted to be a donor, but he thought he couldn't be because of his medical history. And we say, well, actually, um, there's misconceptions about that. He's totally eligible to be a donor. Um, and and so we'll move forward if you're comfortable with it. Man, that's interesting. I, the way that other some other countries do it, that seems like a way better way to do things, <laughs> to, <laughs> to just make it assumed a yes unless you said no. Because I, I, psychologically, that makes more sense to me. Because if you were actually averse to it, you would definitely say no. Like You would go out of your way to do that versus... Exactly. To go out of your way to like go to the DMV, get a state, whatever it takes, like whatever that thing is to go out of your way to make that thing happen is something you don't have to do. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, God, like I was planning on doing that, but then I got caught surfing the Internet and I forgot <laughs> and then I went shopping and, you know, it's like all these things come up. So right. and it's not like really high on someone's to do list. So you versus if if the state mandate was just that everyone was a donor unless you said no. That would make it to the top of your to-do list if you truly did not want to be a donor, you know? Right. Um, yeah. And yeah. Then I think it would help everyone else out. It would help everyone else, like your family in that moment to be like, uh, <laughs> it would help us out for sure. You yeah. know, yeah. So we, we just wouldn't contact you because you said you didn't want to be a donor. Right. Um, the other thing that we struggle with at our organization, if I'm being honest, is people know about organ donation. Um, and when we talk about donation, people think heart, liver, kidneys. Um, but we don't talk about post-mortem donation. So, so tissue and corneas and skin. And, um, so a lot of people who choose not to be donors have this misconception that if I have a heart on my license, then the medical staff is not going to take as good of care of me, which first of all, isn't true. And second of all, then once they've passed away, their family is much more comfortable with it because they think, oh, well, they've already died. So now we're comfortable with moving forward with donation. I am astounded thinking about this, that you guys get called for every single death. Like, how yeah. is this 
possible because I, I mean, everyone dies. 100% of people will die and (laughs) not everyone needs a transplant at some point in their life. Uh, So what, like, is there a decent chunk of time where you get a call, but there's no one that needs the organ at the time? Oh my gosh. No, the waiting list is huge um, for organs. The thing. Okay. So let's back up for just one second for organ donation. Again, heart, liver, kidneys, lungs, um, that sort of thing. Only 1% of the population dies in such a way that makes them eligible for organ donation. Okay. Does that make sense? Right. Yes. Of course. So, Cause they need to so, be young enough, healthy enough, all those things. Exactly. So they can't have had cancer. They have to be brain dead. Only 1% of the population dies from brain death. Like they have to have had a traumatic injury, some sort of anoxic brain injury, some sort of something to make it so that they are brain dead. Um, So only 1% of the population dies in that way. There are thousands of people waiting for an organ and 22 people actually a day die from waiting for an organ. Wow. Um, In this, in the States, in the United States in general, Um, for Every single cardiac death that comes in um, is is that's eligible for tissue and cornea donation. Um, so yeah, there's not a wait list for an ACL. There's not a waiting list for um, a heart valve replacement or a skin graft. There are some that are in higher demand than others. But um, the other thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that when you are an organ donor, your heart has only a limited number of hours before it has to be transplanted into the recipient um for cornea donation we have up to sometimes about 14 days before the cornea has to be transplanted Hmm. and then tissue is processed in such a way that some grafts can stay up to five years preserved before they are transplanted into a person because they're irradiated and they're packaged in a way that they can stay for up to five years right so you're right. There isn't a waiting list for an ACL, but there is a waiting list for a kidney and for a heart and for a lung. Okay. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. I'll take it. Now, do you guys send the drivers to go and pick these things up and ship them and things like that? Or do you <laughs> guys use somebody else to do that? We have a courier service that we use. Yeah. Okay. Um, and <laughs> you mentioned the whole brain death and traumatic injury and, and all that for organ transplant. I imagine that would therefore include um, car accidents and things like that. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So um, talk to us a little bit about that side. So, so far we've kind of discussed working with hospitals, um, families, all of that. What about working with highway patrol or local police to find out about different accidents that have happened? Yeah. So we have a great working relationship with the Nevada Highway Patrol and they will refer um, cases to us. Again, keeping in mind, if you're in a car accident and you're alive, they're going to take you to a hospital. And then the hospital will call us when that patient meets the clinical triggers for calling in a referral. Um, But if you are involved in, well, if a person is involved, not you, please don't you. um, If a person is involved in a car accident and dies on the scene, we have a referral program with the Nevada Highway Patrol. We also have um, a great working relationship with the medical examiner's office here in Nevada. Um, so every single out-of-hospital death is also referred to us. And pretty much all of this is by phone call? Correct. Are your it. phones just blowing up all the time? Yep, <laughs> they are. Yeah, um, we and we have interesting data about like when referrals come in. 
uh, the most busy time is from 11 a.m. to about 10 p.m. Um, but, you know, the referrals are happening at all hours of the day. We have, when we're fully staffed, we have three people on per shift to answer the phones. And they average about 150 calls a day cool. in that department. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, now, on to the, uh, the recipient side of things. Um, sure. Is there a like a network that you guys have, like the internet that the hospitals log into to let you know, hey, we have this patient that needs a kidney. Hey, we have this other patient that needs a heart transplant or whatever it is. Like how do, how do uh, recipients, uh, potential recipients let you know that they want something? Great question. So if you are say in kidney failure, um, when you go to your doctor, they will evaluate you and put you through, you know, extensive tests to make sure that kidney, that, you know, going through donation is what you need to do. Um, and they want to make sure that you're healthy, you know, healthy enough to receive the organ and that you are a, a, a good recipient, but for lack of a better term, um, that you would be a viable candidate for transplantation. Our organization is more involved on the recovery side of things and the donation side of things, but there is a list um, once you go to your doctor and you will work with your transplant center to be put on a list. And okay. that's how that works. And then how does someone move up or down the list? I imagine people get inserted at different points in the list, depending on the severity of what they're dealing with. Exactly. Yep. So based on the severity of your disease, that's where you get placed on the list. And I think it's important to note too, that if, if I'm a donor, it depends on my blood type and a bunch of other tests, diagnostic tests. So not it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. It's not just, I need a kidney. You have a kidney. You can give me your kidney. It's do our blood types match? Do all of these other factors match size, weight, um, all of those sort of genetic markers and testing. So there's, so there's a lot going on there as well. So once we have a donor and we upload those results, then it runs a match list of people who match. <laughs> and then it does. And of course, based on their medical, the recipient's medical state, that d does help determine where they fall on the list. Okay. Now, I wonder also about different um, like state lines, jurisdictions, all that kind of stuff. Because if I live in California and I, my heart is, is going to fail within the next six months, let's say, and there are no hearts available in California, uh, I would like to be open to getting a heart from like New York or something, you know, sure. is that possible? Yeah. So the, the list is nationwide. There are recovery logistics that are involved. Remember, like I said about like the heart only has a couple of hours. So, um, but I mean, we've, we've shipped organs to Canada. <laughs> oh, because, wow. So we even help other countries and vice versa. Oh yeah. Because if, if we don't have someone in our you know, locally or regionally or in our nation that matches with this kidney um, or with this heart or with this lung, we're going to do the best we can to make, to honor this, this donor's wish to of be a donor. Course. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow. That's great. Um, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, again, the, the families that you're speaking to um, sure. of donors and everything. I would like to know what sorts of questions and objections and stuff you get from people. So you mentioned probably the main objection being uh, that they that they actually think that the 
person themselves did not want that. Like, or, or no, like we actually talked about that and they don't want to be a donor. What are other objections that you get? And then when they just need to know something from you, like what are, what are common questions that you receive? Yeah. Um, even when they say we talked about donation and they didn't want to be a donor, my first response is, may I ask why? Um, and they'll say, well, because he wants to have, we want to have a viewing. And if we donate, we're not going to be able to have a viewing. And that's actually not true. Um, you can still have a viewing after you are a donor of anything, organs, tissues, corneas. Um, you can have an open casket viewing. We would only ask that your loved one be dressed in long sleeves or pants because there are surgical incisions. Um, it's so, so interesting. I mean, I, man, all, it, already it's just like very interesting to hear that, you know, like it, it, it uh, and, and I don't, I don't mean to really talk down upon this at all because it, obviously if, if you have a loved one who recently passed away, like I, the emotions that you're going through are incredible you know but i can't imagine putting a a one hour funeral service over the entirety of somebody else's life you know it's that's crazy it's incredible i'm i mean i agree (laughs) but i also firmly believe in respecting someone's wish for their body yeah um and and so that's why we ask why you know because if if we say i mean yeah, if, if they say we've talked about this and they they want it, it's very important for them to have an open casket viewing. And uh, but again, you can still have a viewing. Right. <laughs> um, they'll ask sometimes. It's funny because we'll say, you know, I'm I'm I work for the Nevada Donor Network, and they're like, oh no, we're we're not interested in in donating. We're 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 saving for the funeral. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, we're not asking about money. We're not asking for monetary donation. <laughs> right. Right. Um, <laughs> so that's one thing too is that families are often worried about the cost because if if you think about it if you die in a hospital you've got medical bills to pay then you've got the funeral to pay for there's there's a lot of cost involved once you've passed away um and so i think a lot of families are worried about the cost of donation mm. and we always explain it comes at no cost to your family but also we can't compensate you right. it's, a, <laughs> it's a gift that you're deciding to give if your loved one is registered or it's a gift that your loved one registered themselves to give so it's probably a donation all the way around right like it's all it's like the hospital is basically donating the doctor's time or maybe the doctor is even somehow directly donating their their time and surgery to do that it's like no, nobody's really getting paid on any end to do any of this correct yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, that just makes me think of where does the money come from? Or obviously, the hospital has their own money. But what about you guys? Like, you have this whole staff. Who is who's donating money to you guys? So there are reimbursement fees. So we're not paying for an organ, right? I'm not paying for the kidney, but there is cost associated with the personnel and the staff and the and the medicine and the all of that stuff. And so that reimbursement comes from CMS, um, or an insurance company. So if you need an ACL, you go to your doctor, it's all through insurance that they reimburse for the fee that it takes to procure said organ. Wow. Crazy. So that's part of the insurance fee for the person that's going to be receiving the thing. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Cool. Cool. All right, Miles. So when it comes to donating, what makes for a good donor? That's a, (laughs) it's kind of an interesting question to ask. Um, so I'll start this by saying, for organs, obviously, if you have cancer, 
there's a concern that that cancer would go into the recipient. Um, and so we, for organ donation, cancer is, is one of the things that we call a rule out. That's a rule out. No, no um, cancer whatsoever. So if you had uh, breast cancer, you could not donate your kidney, let's say. If you had active breast cancer, that is correct. Okay. Um, the same is true for tissue. Um, and, and that makes sense, right? I mean, if I need an ACL, I'm not willing to get cancer <laughs> for my ACL. Right. Um, however, uh, for corneas, they are cornea, your corneas are about the size and shape of a contact lens on your eye, and they don't receive any blood flow. So you can have widely metastatic breast cancer and still be a cornea donor and help to people to be able to see again. Hmm. Um, so this whole idea about a good donor is kind of silly because there's so many types of things that are are able, even though you have them, you are able to help. Um, for example, rheumatoid arthritis would not make you eligible for bone donation. However, it would, you would, rheumatoid arthritis doesn't affect your skin or your heart valves. So you are still able to be a donor, even though you might have complex medical history. Right. So it depends so much on what sort of organ you're looking for or tissue part or whatever. Exactly. Um, and I think my main message about that for families or for people considering donation is let us take care of that. Don't worry about your age. Don't worry about your medical history. If you want to be a donor or you're okay with the idea of being a donor, if you want that option, register. And no matter what, we will screen every single referral that comes through, every single potential donor that comes through very thoroughly to make sure that they're a candidate for donation. Right. So so it's not like if you want to sign up, you better be ready to start eating your vegetables every day and running exactly. five miles no, no, no. and everything. Um, no, live your life. <laughs> cool. Now, uh, the cancer thing just makes me wonder, what about just like a melanoma or something? Like if you just had a little speck of skin cancer, is that okay? Or is even that not okay? That's funny. So melanoma is, is gnarly, actually. Um, because it can be dormant, because it can spread so rapidly, um, and you can actually, it can affect the eye. So melanoma is actually the only cancer that is concerning for us if it's active at time of death. Um, but if you have basal cell or squamous cell um, carcinomas, those are totally fine if they've been removed. Okay. For tissue donation included, but oh. they're totally fine for corneas. Okay, cool. Um and how about on the recipient end of things? Is there anything that makes for a good recipient or is it kind of like the other stuff where it's like, well, it depends on what you're receiving? So the recipient side of things is definitely determined by transplant by the transplant center. Um, and those who are listed have undergone extensive evaluation um, to make sure that they would be that they would honor the gift and that they would be a good recipient for the gift. But yeah, that's that's kind of on them. <laughs> Do you ever have recipients that try to uh, contact the family of the donor? Is that allowed? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So a part of our um, process when we talk with donor families and they authorize donation or they support their loved one's decision to be a donor is we ask them if they would be interested in receiving follow up regarding their loved one's gift. And if a recipient reaches out and we can't guarantee that right i mean we can't say if we give you this kidney we want a thank you letter <laughs> right yeah you're not going to force either side to talk to each other of course not no but if someone does feel like they would like to thank their donor or their donor family any letters that we get we would 
um, they would send them to us and we would forward them to the family. And if the family, if both parties agreed, hey, we would like to meet, we would definitely facilitate that. That's really um, cool. Yeah. It's, what's interesting is that uh, we hear from a lot of, especially organ recipients, that they feel a lot of what's called survivor's guilt. You know, that I have this new lease on life, but someone else had to sacrifice for me to get there. And I think that's interesting to me because if you hear from families, donor families, all they want is a, we just want to know that they're, that our loved one's heart lives on. And it's just so nice to know that they're doing better, that, that, that the recipient has a new lease on life, you know? Yeah. Um, Human psychology so yeah, is just so weird. It, it, like hearing you say all that, it's like, it, it just, I mean, it makes so much sense, you know, like bo yeah. both of those things. It makes sense that it, yeah. like I, the whole time and during this interview, I've been thinking about how nice that would be if you, if you were dead to know, I mean, not that you're really going to know, but like to know that, that your organs have been given to somebody would be like so awesome. And yet, yeah, like getting somebody else's organs, if they died, let's say in like a car accident or something, it's just like, oh, like that it would have just been so much better if that person just never got in the car accident. And like, maybe then I would have been the one that would have died, but damn, like they had to get, you know, it's like, it's just a, yeah. the human mind is a strange thing. Like the way that we feel guilt and shame and all that. Yeah. I, I, I think about that a lot because I, I worked for a while in the, in a department where a part of my job was to receive the recipient thank you letters and follow up information. Um, because also we are worried, very worried and, and interested and, in, and, in, concerned about um, medically and clinically how a recipient is doing, right? Um, so, and, and we're tracking, you know, because you're on all of these immunosuppressants to, in order to receive the gift. So once you receive an organ you and all those immunosuppressants that you're on, we want to make sure that you don't obtain any infections. Or if you do get an infection, we want to make sure that it's not donor-derived. So we'd follow up with all the other recipients to make sure that they're doing well. Um, and so when I worked in a department that got that information back, it was always so interesting that the transplant centers just didn't write a lot about how the recipient was feeling, like what their hobbies were, what their interests were. And they all said it was because of survivor's guilt. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. Because again, all the family is interested in is I just want to know that my loved one lives on and that they're doing, that they're happy and healthy and able to resume normal day-to-day -day life you know i mean you get these amazing stories about corn just like the cornea like who even knew that you could donate a cornea and you you read these letters like i was in so much pain and not only was my life affected but my family's life was affected because i couldn't drive and i couldn't read and i couldn't see and now i have this tiny cornea that your loved one gave me and i can see my grandchildren again and I can drive myself to work and I can work. Um, I can read signs as I couldn't read before. And you think that is a huge impact, not only on yeah. that recipient, but on their whole family. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's amazing. It's so it's awesome. Amazing. Um, all right, let's go ahead and start to wind this thing down. Miles, I would love to sure. know what the best part of your job is. I imagine there's quite a few awesome parts about it, but if you can only yeah. pick one, what is it? <sighs> only one. Can I have two? <laughs> you, you could have two. Thanks. The first one is, of course, talking with donor families and walking them through this process and being a resource for them in probably the worst time of their life. Um, and it's 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 amazing 
the connection that, and, and this is all over the phone, by the way. So it's amazing the connection that you can have without ever seeing a person in that amount of time. I love that humanistic component to my job more yeah. than anything. Um, getting off the phone and, and feeling like you were able to help somebody who is in a, a crappy day yeah. means the world to me. Um, the other thing that I love is the connection with nurses, with coroners, with funeral home staff, with people who are on the front lines dealing with this every day, that camaraderie, you know, like a, a nurse is calling and you hear the the beeps in the background and there's another <laughs> code happening and, and he or she is like overwhelmed and you're like, I feel you sister. Yeah, <laughs> like totally, having right? that camaraderie with people is great. I love that. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I mean, and I guess those are related, but it's, it's that human connection to people and helping people out day in and day out is the best. Yeah. And in both sides, I'm very traumatic, sort of frantic things. It, you know, it, yeah. it, it's interesting. It just makes me think of, um, I don't know what like the psychological term for that is, but like when people, you know, like shared trauma, like when people go yeah. through trauma together and then they, it, they're so much more likely to have like lasting, lasting relationships and friendships and stuff because they went through this like really hard thing together and, and like right. who else knows me better than this person that shared that one really gnarly experience with me and uh and it's like that's what you're getting to do with so many people you know like yeah. what you were saying on the donor <laughs> on side and their families it's like, like it's yeah. this incredibly memorable 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 time in these people's lives um and difficult and you're you're yeah. there with them during that which is really cool um, all right, let's go ahead and finish this thing up. Uh, rather than ask you about how to get your job and like advice on that, I would love to maybe help some more people out and give advice for people that would like to be sure that they are on an organ donor list. What are the easiest ways that people can get on an organ donor list? Um, to be a donor, right? To be a donor. Not yeah, yeah. And listen sure. up everyone in Nevada. You guys got a low <laughs> yeah. donor percentage. Let's up this thing. <laughs> The easiest way to do it is go to registerme.org. Cool. Sounds um, easy enough. I'll put a link to that on the half hour intern site in case people can't remember awesome. or forget. But uh, yeah, that's great. And then also your iPhone health app in the medical ID tab. Uh, that's that's the way to do it, too. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly, I'm registered in all the places. So if you look at my registry, I'm like registered at the DMV. I'm registered at registerme.org. I'm registered on the iPhone health app. Like I'm never not registered. Yeah. They're going <laughs> to think there's take... like five of you. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be like, wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Registerme.org. Cool. Awesome. Miles. Well, this has been so interesting and such a pleasure. We, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks so much. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show, be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview, a particular field that you would like to hear about, or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show. Thanks so much for listening, you guys.